Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello and welcome back from your weekend. Uh, I wish we had jollier news. I, I see this every Monday now. Uh, we do have something jolly at the end of the show. There's a, a recrudescence of professional bowling. And Brian Curtis from The Ringer is going to talk about it. But we have sterner stuff that we've got to face right now. And we kind of begin with the politicization of everything, right? I'm now convinced that if at some point we do have a killer comet or asteroid bearing down on Earth, it will become a political question, right? There'll be one side will be saying, well, no, the other side just pouring a lot of money into this trumped up idea. You should pardon the expression uh, that there's a killer comet or asteroid, but there isn't really. I mean, if we can politicize climate change and Russian election interference, there's sort of nothing left, really. Uh, it is, uh, in fact, the Russian interference that we're going to be talking about right now. Uh, no serious person questions that the uh, Russian government tried to interfere uh, through its uh, apparatus uh, in the 2016 election, uh, both technologically by scanning, trying to get into actual election systems, uh, by uh, running advertising on social media, uh, and by even assuming the identities of dead Americans for the purpose of kind of creating more discord and trouble. Uh, a lot of that's there in, in, in uh, indictments uh, and charging statements that have come out from the Mueller team. Um, but, I mean, virtually every intelligence service – oh, no, not virtually. All the intelligence services uh, agree. We, we've got a problem here. Um, and even at one time, Mitch McConnell would have said we had a problem, A1. We believe the European Union uh, countries are our friends. And uh, the Russians are not. They've demonstrated that in all the obvious ways over the last few years. The annexation of Crimea, the invasion of eastern Ukraine, not to mention the indisputable evidence that they tried to impact the 2016 election. So make no mistake about it. I would say to our friends in Europe, um, we understand the Russian threat, and I think that is the widespread view here in the United States Senate among members of both parties. All right. Joining us now uh, is Dana Milbank, syndicated columnist for The Washington Post, covering national politics. Mitch McConnell has been singing a very different tune then, which has caused Dana Milbank to write a column that begins, Mitch McConnell is a Russian asset. Uh, them's probably pretty provocative words. Uh, we'll get to why you chose them. But, you know, when you listen to that clip, Dana Milbank, and that's just from uh, 2018, it, it did seem, uh, it's almost exactly a year ago, it did seem at the time that that McConnell had basically the same apprehensions that we do. Uh, yes, and maybe he still has them, but uh, he's uh, found other things 
that are more important. I don't hear him saying uh, that the Russians didn't interfere. I did uh, hear uh, that being suggested, at least in part, uh, by some uh, members of Congress uh, in the House as they were questioning Mueller last week. Uh, but, uh, you know, the interesting thing with McConnell is he acknowledges it's a problem, uh, but then that any time a solution comes forth to try to fix it, to try to put up our defenses uh, for the next election, uh, he is almost single-handedly stopping that from happening. Uh, now, now maybe he doesn't like, you know, each of these dozen or so pieces of legislation, but you think in cases like that, the Senate Majority Leader would offer an alternative that he does like, but he hasn't done that either, uh, which is why I got to the, you know, the, the point of saying he really is uh, uh, doing, uh, whether he's intending to or not, he's doing uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, bidding because he is keeping our defenses down while uh, uh, Russia and perhaps others get ready uh, to attack us again. They're already doing it. Right. So not a Russian asset in the sense of Boris and Natasha. You get moose, I get squirrel. Uh, more a Russian <laughs> right. asset in the sense that everything that he does plays into a strategy that the Russians uh, are embarking on and, uh, and have been embarking yes. on for a long time. Right. Not, I'm not suggesting he's a spy. It's right out there in the open. He is an asset uh, uh, to the Russian government uh, in, in what he's doing. I think more perhaps than any other uh, American, he's helping that country. I mean, people would, you know, look at what uh, uh, the president does, but he's been, you know, uh, his, his sort of pro- Putin tendencies have been uh, reined in to some extent by the likes of uh, uh, Josh Bolton. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to the election interference uh, that is really uh, getting bottled up uh, in the Senate and it's really being done uh, by one man. So just so we're, uh, our listeners are clear, these include bills that would require presidential campaigns to report to the FBI, offers of assistance from agents of foreign governments, a bill that would require campaigns to report to the FBI contributions by foreign nationals, bipartisan legislation protecting lawmakers from foreign cyber attacks, the big one, Securing America's Federal Elections Act, already passed by the House, directs $600 million in election assistance to states and requires backup paper ballots, uh, on and on. There's I could name four more bills. And, and in each case, he, Mitch McConnell, has made sure uh, in his role as the Republican leader of the Senate that these bills just don't get considered. Right. And in virtually uh, all of those that you mentioned, there is some uh, Republican uh, support, whether that's from uh, Richard Burr, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, or from uh, Lindsey Graham, or for uh, Senator Langford from uh, Oklahoma, uh, Tom Cotton from Arkansas. You know, these are you know, hardly uh, liberals. Uh, you know, having a secure, uh, a believable uh, election uh, is in the interest or should be in the interest of every American, uh, you would think. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, basically the problem is, uh, the elections are run by the states, which are, are pretty much broke. Uh, uh, they've been, they've been given since 2016 about 300, 400 million, uh, dollars by the federal government. Um, from what I've been able to, uh, from my research, it seems they need about two billion dollars to sort of, uh, uh, protect themselves. So we're just essentially leaving them, uh, vulnerable and, um, you know, decided that, uh, this is not a priority. And I, it, it seems to me that, uh, if you can't give the people confidence that the election, uh, is going to be free and fair, well, then it's, it's really hard for the government to do anything else. You know, we said at the outset that uh, he probably still does believe in Russian interference, but he's sort of 
a kind of a Schrodinger's cat on this, too. He's a quantum, Mitch McConnell, because in some of his recent statements and the statements coming out of so-called Team Mitch, uh, we get the Democrats rushing conspiracy theories against President Trump, mm-hmm. hit a dead end during the Mueller uh, hearing, no collusion, case closed. So now, like a mm-hmm. failed doomsday cult that predicted the end of the world, the liberal grifters need a fresh target, Mitch. I mean, that's sort mm-hmm. of coming out of the Mitch McConnell apparatus. And I've seen quotes from him that are kind of similar, that this all is a conspiracy theory ginned up by the Democrats for political purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the whole notion of the uh, uh, Russian involvement? Is he talking about, you know, particularly uh, as it involves uh, Trump? I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, it, it, if he's talking about the former, it obviously contradicts uh, uh, everything uh, that he had said uh, previously. What I have seen watching Mitch McConnell over the years is uh, where he stands seems to be somewhat situational in terms of, you know, certainly look at the uh, Supreme Court and Merrick Garland, for example. Uh, you know, it just depends on where he stands at the moment. And where he stands at the moment uh, is in preserving uh, his Senate uh, majority. And if uh, various things were to happen in terms of uh, uh, laws reducing voter suppression, you know, things that would bring more voters out to the polls, that would threaten his uh, Republican majority. Uh, the Russians did help uh, the, the Republicans in 2016. Uh, you know, we don't, don't know exactly what the impact was, but that was certainly uh, where they were weighing in. So that helps uh, Mitch McConnell. Is that why he's doing it? I don't know. I can't be inside of his head, but uh, it certainly you know, makes that a fair question. Right. Um, I wish that I felt more inclined to argue with you about some of this, but I, if anything, <laughs> I'm even more worried. Uh, and, and I mean, I do think that it's, it's, there's a meaningful distinction to be made between what is admittedly unadmirable Republican behavior when, in fact, they understand that if they make it harder for voters to register in certain areas, if they make it harder for people to get through uh, the polls themselves uh, when they go to vote in certain areas, th- that will help their cause. If they can get rid of a certain kind of voter, uh, that helps them. Okay, so that's that's not nice, and it's not. Uh, it seems vaguely un-American, uh, but that's one thing to say. Well, Russian interference seems to be working pretty good for us right now. I don't see any reason to tighten up uh, our security. Uh, to me, we're we're on a slightly different playing field. Would you agree? Well, sure. I mean, you know, one is. Uh, uh, I mean, they're they're both sort of evils, but I mean, if we're ranking evil, I mean, one is within the country and the other is uh, essentially uh, uh, helping uh, the enemy, something from outside of the country. And I think there has been a whole lot of uh, confusion lately that people uh, in politics, uh, uh, both sides, but, you know, obviously in in the era of Trump, it's been particularly lopsided, tend to see your opponents uh, as the enemy. Uh, and, uh, you know, thinking the Democrats are the enemy as opposed to Russia or China, uh, or, or, uh, North Korea. Uh, uh, I think that's been, been a, a problem that's been building over a generation, but it really seems to be, uh, out of whack now. And, uh, you know, we've, we've lost a sense of, uh, you know, you know, what is patriotism? Uh, you know, when the president can, uh, you know, uh, go, you know, attack uh, John McCain's uh, war record and attack him even uh, after he's uh, he's died and continue to attack him. You know, there this would have been something that we all would have said as Americans. That's just not acceptable. Uh, Russia uh, tampering in our election, whatever the result, unacceptable. Um, but we seem to be in another place now where it's uh, 
whatever the, uh, 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 the, the ends seem to justify whatever the means are. You know, as you said, uh, as I ticked through a bunch of bills, uh, some of them have Republican support, Republican sponsors, Republican drafters in some cases. And some of the Republicans in the Senate kind of think and easily understand that even, even if it could be said that what happened in 2016 benefited the Republican Party, you know, re- a foreign interference can come in all kinds of forms. There's no particular guarantee that foreign actors will always choose their side. Uh, another country or even Russia in a different mood might be just as happy with a Democratic victory. So, I mean, you sort of think that eventually maybe they could get his attention. Do we know anything about the intra-caucus dynamics of the Republicans in the Senate? Uh, well, we know that, uh, that various members uh, have pushed for this. Uh, we know that uh, uh, McConnell has, uh, at various points, stopped uh, bills from consideration. You know, even when they've got as close as going to the uh, Senate uh, Rules Committee, when things were, you know, pulled abruptly when they were about to come to a vote. So there's clearly uh, uh, some dissension there. It's, it's not exactly like this is uh, uh, spilled out uh, into the open or anything. And the truth is, uh, you know, Trump has been skeptical of this as well, and Republican lawmakers are famously unwilling uh, uh, to uh, get out there on anything that might uh, disappoint him. Now, the truth of the matter is uh, the Trump hasn't had to fight these things because uh, he's had uh, uh, the majority leader to take care of this for him. Um, one of the people within the Trump administration who did repeatedly describe a red warning light that was blinking, uh, who did describe ongoing attempts uh, by Russia and probably other nations to interfere with our voting process was Dan Coats. Uh, Dan Coats, as intelligence director, is is now on the way out. Uh, I assume this is also a concern. Well, it is. Um, uh, you know, the, the the fellow coming in as a congressman by the name of, of Ratcliffe has been, uh, you know, a, a Trump loyalist, and uh, just as recently as last week was uh, attacking uh, Mueller in the in the in the House hearings. Uh, so, you know, the question uh, comes in the future: Will he uh, speak up for the independence of uh, the intelligence community, or will he uh, simply be echoing Donald Trump when you have the sort of thing like you had uh, uh, in Helsinki at the uh, at the Trump Putin meeting? So, in theory, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a problem, but it is also uh, possible that uh, he will, uh, you know, respect the uh, intelligence community he represents. So, it's a worrisome sign. But you, we've seen this over and over again. Uh, people like Christopher Wray come in uh, to the FBI, Trump appointed, but, you know, take the same position their predecessors have because those are the facts uh, in front of them. So it's it's sort of this professionalism is held so far. There is a question of, you know, how many loyalists do you appoint? So you find one who will just uh, say whatever you want them to say. All right. On that cheery note, we must say farewell, but we were very lucky to have the great Dana Milbank with us today, syndicated columnist with The Washington Post, covering national politics. He wrote a piece on Friday calling Senate leader Mitch McConnell a Russian asset. Read it yourself. Uh, thanks so much for talking to us. My pleasure. All right. We're going to get a little bit more technical now. We're going to uh, talk once again to Kim Zetter, a journalist who writes about cybersecurity and national security. She did a whole show with us, I think it was last year. Uh, And we'll talk about how she sees this threat developing.
All right, we are back, and joining us today is uh, Kim Zetter. She's been with us before to talk about election security. Uh, she uh, is a journalist who writes about cybersecurity and national security, the author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch of the world's first digital weapon. Uh, welcome back to our show, Kim Zetter. Thank you. So um, as we look at, uh, as we face the resignation of Dan Coats, or the departure of Dan Coats anyway, um, which I referenced in talking to Dana Milbank, maybe it's time to talk a little bit about what the federal government has done so far in terms of offering help to states and counties. States and counties run elections. Uh, states and counties are not necessarily fully amped up counter cyber terrorism uh, operations. Uh, in fact, probably anything but. So uh, it's probably up to the federal government to kind of even those odds a little bit. What has the Department of Homeland Security done so far? Well, um, it took them a while to gain the trust of counties and states, but in the last uh, three years, since 2016, they've made great strides in um, collaborating with election officials in districts to help them find better methods of securing their systems. So they are um, providing checklists for best practices. In many cases, they are doing on-site uh, security and risk assessments. So that involves um, looking for software that is vulnerable and needs patches, um, looking for systems that are connected to the Internet that shouldn't be connected, and helping um, develop uh, more secure practices and processes. But what it doesn't do, I mean, DHS is focusing on looking for vulnerabilities only on Internet-facing systems. So these are systems that are um, the back-end voter registration databases that may be connected to the Internet, the websites that are reporting results on election night, and they're looking at the election management systems in the county offices, um, which shouldn't be connected to the Internet. What they're not doing, however, is looking at the voting machines themselves. Um, and they have actually initiated a, a, a program with voting machine vendors to examine voting machines at Idaho National Lab, which um, does I, – INL I, I already has a system for assessing industrial control system security. But what they're doing with the vendors are only looking so far at systems that are upcoming, new systems that the vendors um, will be uh, marketing. So it doesn't touch at all on the systems that we already have in place and have had in place for two decades that we already know are not secure. Right. Um, I remember the last time you and I spoke, one thing that you brought up, for example, in Connecticut, you know, we have pretty, a pretty secure system. We probably think our system is more secure than it really is. One of the things that was touted in 2018 was, well, our system isn't, our machines aren't connected to the Internet. Our system isn't uh, connected to the Internet. But as you pointed out at the time, you know, anytime there's a, any kind of USB interface with a machine or imagine that a foreign power or cyber terrorist were able to somehow or other compromise the companies that make the machines so that when a software patch gets sent out to update some aspect of the machine or in the actual making of the machine itself, uh, there could be problems. I, I mean, I think one of the things that we tell ourselves is, oh, well, we don't have to worry here in this state because X, Y, Z. And it seems as though some of those X, Y, Zs are a little bit too self-comforting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't even have to. It's, it's not even an issue of software updates to the machines because those those don't happen very often. They're mm -hmm. kind of rare. Um, but what does happen before each election is that the machines get programmed for that election. 
um, you know, the and many times that's the voting machine vendor, or it's some third-party company that election officials hire to do it. And programming the machine means you're setting up the machine, telling it if you touch, um, you know, Donald Trump's name on this screen, or if you um, mark in this oval on the paper ballot, then the machine should um, uh, uh, apportion the vote to that particular candidate. But you can also um, program the machine so that when you touch Donald Trump, it actually apportions the vote for a different candidate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one thing that I noticed that you've been very interested in today in particular, and it's a thing that I think about. I mean, I I do think that as I talk to people, as I communicate with people, a lot of people don't take this all that seriously or they just feel like, well, they didn't, they may have scanned, you know, the systems of 50 states. I'm talking about Russia, but they didn't change any votes or there's no proof that they did. And a lot of this is filtered through people like me. You know, I don't really have any, I don't have the kind of training or expertise that you do in cybersecurity. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I have to interview a person like you in order to find out anything. But but I, you seem kind of concerned right now with the literacy of the journalists who are often in a kind of mainstream position trying to inform the public about this stuff. Yeah, one of the things that concerned me uh, regarding the Senate report that came out last week is that we saw a number of um, headlines and stories saying that the Senate report concluded that voting machines in 50 states were hacked. Um, and there are two two problems, two errors in those headlines. And one is that it wasn't voting machines. Um, it was election systems, and there's a difference between those. We're talking about um, voter registration databases, websites, not voting machines that mm-hmm. the voter casts a ballot on. And secondly, they weren't all hacked. There were a couple of states where the Russians apparently got into the database or got into a back-end system. Um, but for the most part, they were, as you said, scanned. And that just means uh, oftentimes it's an automated program that is, that is um, scanning dozens and dozens of sites at once just looking for vulnerabilities to see if there's a way to get in. Um, And that doesn't mean that they actually get in. But, I mean, it seems to me that we've come to, uh, per my first segment today, this kind of political crisis where one side is or part of one side of our political system is saying there really isn't that much of a problem here and we really don't have to pass these bills and we don't necessarily need to get more money out of the states. A lot of this has all been sort of ginned up as part uh, of a political argument in this country. And, And you do need people who can inform members of the citizenry, those who are willing to listen and haven't already picked a hardened off side. And, and I, I, I sense and I understand your concern, right? Uh, a lot of us who, who are in that job, we really don't know that much about this stuff. Yeah, my, my problem is, uh, so I don't want to downplay it by saying, no, they weren't hacked and no, they weren't actually voting systems. I don't want to downplay it at all. Um, and I don't think that the problem is a minor problem. Um, uh, you know, I, I want to go back to that statement that you, you, you quoted people as saying that no votes were changed. No one knows if any votes were changed. No one has actually even looked at whether or not votes were changed. No one has done any forensic investigation of voting machines in this country. And so um, what the government is referring to when they say that is um, we, it, it, the intelligence agencies have been looking for any chatter online of people discussing whether or not they changed votes. And that's all they're looking at. Um, And also they're looking at 2016. Um, These machines have been vulnerable for two decades. 
And so during any of that time in the last two decades, um, there might have been code uh, installed on these machines, either by external adversaries, foreign adversaries, or by internal uh, people who want to throw an election. So I'm not making light of it at all. And my, my point is that it doesn't help to misinform the public or uh, I don't think that the problem can be exaggerated, but I, can't, I think it can be um, uh, misinformed in a way that then allows people um, like the Republicans to say, well, they didn't really hack the machines. Everyone's exaggerating. That's fake news. So I think it's really important to get the facts right, to not downplay the issues, but also to not overstate them so that it, um, it opens the possibility for people to say, uh, look, this is fake news. We do tend to um, hyper-focus on and almost fetishize the voting machines themselves. Not that they shouldn't be very, very carefully monitored. But as you've pointed out in the past, there's other parts of this system, uh, including voter registration records. uh, And those can be tampered with in a different way. I think we've already had that uh, through VR Systems, a Florida election software company. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I mean, so, so if, if the Russians, if we know anything about what the Russians did do in 2016, because we don't know if they, they have gotten into the voting machines themselves that voters cast ballots on, we do know that they were targeting voter registration databases. And we knew, do know that they specifically targeted at least one company that makes voter registration software, and that's VR Systems in Florida. Now, VR Systems has maintained that it, they, were, they were targeted in a, in a phishing campaign, um, which is designed to trick uh, VR Systems employees to provide the usernames and passwords for their accounts. Um, VR Systems has indicated that none of their employees fell for this trick and, and provided passwords. But we do know that the Russians were also at the same time examining the VR Systems website for vulnerabilities that could allow them to get into the back-end network. So the concern with VR Systems is VR Systems directly interfaces, directly communicates with its customers, its election official customers, and it provides them with files um, through their network. So if the Russians were able to get into VR Systems, that's a direct conduit then to then infect uh, election customers. And uh, in this case, you know, the, 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 the focus would be um, voter registration databases. In the past, we've been concerned about voter registration databases uh, for identity theft reasons. So, you know, if information is, is available um, online uh, that would allow uh, a thief to obtain social security numbers um, that are included in voter registration databases, that's what our primary concern was in the past. Well, in 2016, we see that there's a bigger concern here, and that is someone getting into the databases and altering records in a way that would prevent a voter from, from actually voting, uh, changing their record, uh, deleting their records so that they don't look like they're a registered voter, changing their address so that they show up at the polls, um, a precinct, and they're told, no, this isn't your precinct, um, or that they're you know, designated a felon, and so their voting right is taken away. You know, uh, it's always interesting and a little bit uh, paradoxical that usually the chief elections official in the state, whether it's the secretary of state or some other position, you know, they have kind of an understandable interest in trying to build up confidence in the system, right? They want they want people to come out and vote. That's part of their job is to encourage people to vote. So they don't want people to come out and think that somehow or other maybe their registration has been hacked, they're going to run into problems, or that the system itself doesn't work, it doesn't count votes accurately. Accurately. So they're probably going to have a little bit of a tendency to put as good a face as they can on it. And I, I should say also, as I'm saying this, 
that I don't want to send an opposite message either. You should vote. No matter what you think our problems are, you should vote. Nothing that ever gets said on this show that means that you shouldn't go and vote. Uh, but, uh, Kim, it seems like it's going a little bit further, that kind of putting a rosy face on uh, on this. Even at the federal level, uh, the uh, the chairman of the, um, uh, of the Elections Assistant Commission, which exists, right, to, to begin to address some of these problems, you had a piece last March saying even he's downplaying some of these risks. It's not just downplaying, it's spreading misinformation about the risks. I mean, the EAC has been guilty of telling election officials that it's okay to use modems to transmit election results on election night. Um, the EAC has told election officials a modem doesn't connect your system to the Internet, and that's just false information. It's, it's, um, it's a basic misunderstanding of how the technology works. Um, you know, I, I, I understand the... Um, I understand the impetus for election officials to not want to frighten voters or to not want them to to disaffect them in ways that will cause them to not go to the polls. Um, but the thing is, is that the election officials are not taking um, a counter step that would actually uh, give the voter confidence. There are there are choices. There are solutions that they can implement that they aren't implementing. So okay, don't you don't want to frighten voters by telling them that the systems are not secure. But at the same time, you're also not implementing um, what are known as risk limiting audits that would actually provide some confidence that nothing has been altered in an election. And so you can't have it both ways. You can't um, on the one hand tell voters, hey, no problem, um, don't be concerned, everything is. Secure, and then at the same time not take the steps that you need to take to actually secure the election. Maybe quickly explain a risk-limiting audit, audits. Yeah, so a risk-limiting audit is a statistically significant sample of ballots that you audit after an election, um, and that the number of ballots that you would audit, and by auditing, I'm, um, you need to have a backup paper ballot, so you need an optical scan ballot that a voter has marked. And therefore, after the election, you can take a certain number of those paper ballots and compare them against at, at a certain number of precincts and compare them against the digital tallies to make sure that they, they match. Um, and that's really the only way that you can see not only if someone has, has intentionally altered um, votes, but whether or not the software um, has had a glitch that caused um, the system to drop digital votes or not. And we don't do that. Uh, there are a couple of states now that have, have implemented risk-limiting audits. Uh, Colorado was the first. They've been pioneering this. Rhode Island. And there are other states that are now learning from Colorado, um, and it'll take them some while to implement. But really what we need are federal law, a federal law that would actually require all states, no questions asked, to do this kind of audit after every election. But you can only do that kind of audit if you have a paper if ballot paper. to match it against. And, yeah, and aren't there quite a few states still that don't have really any kind of paper trail? Yes, there are some, there are some, some states that have no paper trail uh, statewide. Georgia is one of them. And there are some states that in certain districts, they have machines that don't have a paper backup. Um, and so um, th- th- this is part of the issue of getting some kind of federal le- legislation that really sets that kind of baseline that requires every district, every election to have a paper backup and then also to have an audit. Right. I'll get yelled at by our Secretary of State if I don't point out. We do have some kind of post-election audit. It may not be at the statistically significant level that you're referencing, but uh, I know that towns are selected post-election for audits. Yeah, but those audits are insufficient. They're, all, they're, almost, the, they're almost at the point of not, not being an audit at all.
All right. So <laughs> I'll get yelled at. Um, all right. So uh, we have to wrap this up here. But uh, Kim Zetter, always uh, great but scary to talk to you, a journalist who writes about cybersecurity and national security, author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch of the world's first digital weapon. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate all right. And uh, we're going to take a break. We are going to end on a joyous note, because what could be more joyous than the sound of a ball propelled down an alley? And the sound of pins collapsing. It's bowling. Bowling is back. With love from Russia, Vladimir is hot. Just like the Phoenix, a superpower never dies. All right, your pro bowler name is an adjective that describes your scalp, plus a heavy, hard-to-digest food that you like. Today's show was produced by Betsy Harry Brisket Kaplan and me, Flaky Kugel. Our interns are Carolyn McCusker and Jesse Steinmetz. The part of Bill Curry was played by Walter Sobchik. Over the line! Over the line! On tomorrow's show, we're airing a terrific conversation about the controversial artist Saul Lewitt, and then you got a date on Wednesday, baby. And now... Back to Colin. You got a date on Wednesday, baby. Although one of the, well, actually, we'll get to that revelation a little bit later in Brian Curtis's piece. Brian Curtis is editor at large at The uh, Ringer, uh, co-host with David Shoemaker of the Press Box podcast. He has been on our show many times, but never before to talk about bowling because there was not a thing to say about bowling that was really very important. Apparently, this has changed. So, uh, Brian, you're arguing that there's a, a recrudescence of professional bowling Tell us how and where that's taking place. Well, it's taking place uh, on television, I think, first of all. I think the the bowling crowd at your average alley is probably the same as it ever was, with one very notable exception we'll talk about in a minute. But um, Fox has got the rights to bowling, so you find bowling now on FS1. You find it maybe being replayed between 10 and 20 times, your average uh, event out there in Akron or someplace like that. And then up in Portland, Maine... Something really interesting is going on, which a bunch is a bunch of people in their 30s and 40s kind of rediscovered bowling and decided that they liked it and decided not only all that, that they wanted to dress up in increasingly wacky costumes and show up at PBA events in Portland and scream the whole time. And by that, I don't mean to scream when the bowler gets a strike, but scream as soon as he picks up the ball from the ball return and kind of keep screaming and, and try to sort of turn bowling into as I think I put it, something between a cross between the Rocky Horror Picture Show and College Game Day. So let's go back to this point about TV. And, and, and to illustrate, uh, I have provided uh, two examples. So let's do C2 first. This is what bowling sounded like when I was but a wee lad. And, and the voice of bowling really was this incredibly dignified and, and really terrific sports announcer named Chris Schenkel. Keith Little will be rolling on 14, finishing on 15, while Don Carter... Uh, we had the choice of the matter, using a little strategy, wanted to start on 15, thus making him finish on 14. Far inside, or to the left of the center spot on the approach, is Keith Little. This is the first ball of the final match worth $5,000. He's high. He leaves a 6'10". He fails to get the strike that he wanted to start things off. 
All right. So he sounds kind of like he's talking about the Mueller hearings or something, you know, Representative Ratcliffe will be asking some questions now. Um, And so uh, one of the people that you wrote about, uh, uh, Brian, was this guy, Rob Stone, who has emerged as the new voice of bullying. And the clip we're going to play, I don't know how typical this is, but the clip that I found, he's actually, even though he's like the sports guy, he's the TV uh, uh, play by play or roll by roll guy. He's kind of got a back and forth going on with one of the bullers. Anyway, this is what Rob Stone sounds like. As great as Barrett's start has been, it has been the polar opposite for Doherty. Strike, open frame, open frame. Here he is in the fourth, on the right lane. Hey, Rob, if I miss this one, you have to leave the booth. Okay, he's calling me out. (laughs) Tom, I'm just hoping you break 100 before we go to commercial. And I don't think it's going to happen. You're laughing because you know why he's calling me out, don't you? How about you just hit the 10 pin, Tom? There we go, Tom! So, you know, Brian, there is this sort of prototypical ESPN, Fox Sports 1, semi-annoying white guy voice, which I think Rob Stone kind of has, right? He sounds like he could be announcing a lot of different sports. Have we lost Brian? No, I'm there. Oh, there is. Yeah. yeah, just getting you to react. to. So what is Rob Stone bringing to us? Well, it sounds to me like he's in the Will Ferrell sports movie universe, yeah. you know, where you're kind of, you know, wearing a leather jacket and you're you're smiling and sneering on the sidelines. And you're almost, as you say, talking to the athletes. There are other clips where he's like, come on now, Sean. Come on now. Get, the, get this done. Keep it calm, kid. Keep it calm. And I think, you know, as opposed to announcing a bowling tournament like the Space Shuttle launch, which was the Chris Schenkel way, he's sort of trying to bring it into the, you know, bring it to the kids a little bit and sort of liven it up. So the other thing that you're going to need, obviously, is maybe a new kind of bowling star. One of the people that you wrote about is Portland Lumberjack Kyle Troop, part of this uh, main uh, hysterical bowling scene that you've described. Tell us about uh, Mr. Troop. He's got an afro that I think I described in the piece as planetary. Uh, he's a he's a very uh, he wears these bowling suits that again, if you've only experienced bowling through a movie like Kingpin or Lebowski or something like that, it's exactly how you would imagine a pro bowler dresses. We're talking pla- green plaid pants and a matching green plaid top, and then topped off, of course, by this afro. And when he gets a strike, a particularly big strike, he will pull an afro pick out of his pocket and he'll autograph it, and he'll hand it to the people on the front row. And, you know, there's a little bit of a, it's a little kind of half Elvis and half Reggie Jackson, and and it's all happening on a bowling lane. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's clear, too, is that, you know, it's hard to, I guess maybe basketball would be the other sport where the fans are incredibly close, physically close uh, to the athletes that, you know, I mean, there's really, there's not a lot of, you know, I don't know. There's not a lot of foul territory in a bowling alley. <laughs> no. And in fact, uh, up there in Portland at this place called Bayside Bowl, the very first year they did this, they got all their, their regulars from the alley and everyone was, shall we say, fairly well-oiled from uh, from some drinking that might have been going on since about 6 a.m. And at one point, Pete Weber, who's a very good bowler, steps up to the lane and then he starts laughing and he has to step back because one of the regulars has fallen into the lane and is now blocking the lane. You do not see that uh, at your average Yankee game. No. I mean, we should say falling into the lane in all probability due to massive pregame tailgating alcohol consumption. 
<laughs> he was not he was not diving in not Morgana the kissing bandit he just involuntarily fell into the lake right it's not like he hyperventilated because the bowling was getting so excited exciting or something like that <laughs> so, no. so so I guess the question one of the questions that I had reading your article and people should read Brian's piece because there's uh, some flourishes here that we will not be able to recreate on the radio but I, I'm trying to figure out how much of this and it's sort of one of the fundamental existential questions of this moment in American cultural history. How much of this is ironic and how much of this is genuinely felt? Like when I first started reading it, I thought this is a bunch of hipsters who are embracing this the way they embrace a whole lot of other stuff that has been dead for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And they're doing it with a sort of ironic detachment from it. But it's, that's less clear to me as I read along and certainly as I watch the TV clips. Yeah, so that's a really fascinating question. I think it's probably a happy place where a lot of the people who are watching it are watching with a little bit of that ironic detachment. Hey, look at that guy with the afro and boy, I hope he gets a strike. Ha ha, pass me another uh, natural light or whatever your, whatever the drink of choice is today. But then the bowlers themselves, even, even Kyle Troop, who you just mentioned, who's signing the afro pick, are doing it with the utmost seriousness. So that's an interesting combination, right, where your audience is watching a little goofily, but the people on screen are doing this. With, it's almost like an Ed Wood movie, you know, screening or something like that. It's just there's, there is that little thing. But, I, you know, I think in sports land, this works a little bit like the poker tour did on ESPN 15 years ago. I'm not sure there were a whole bunch of people watching those guys and saying, boy, that guy's the best poker player in the world. You know, I, I, I need his baseball card. I need his jersey. I need him to sign an 8x10 for me. But it was kind of fun. It was kind of funny. And in, in sports world, it kind of, you know, it passed the afternoon. And I think that's kind of what bowling's going for. Right. Well, I think another point that's made by somebody in your piece, I forget who, is there's a way in which the highs and lows of bowling are maybe a little bit more manageable. It's sort of like being a sports fan on Lexapro a little bit. You know, that, um, <laughs> you know, that like it's not like you're I, I like when I watch the Packers games with a bunch of other people from Wisconsin and if they lose, it's we're close to just eating the tapioca, you know, with the strychnine in it or something. You know, there's just kind of no point in living. And and there's a sense I get from your article and from that quote that that maybe this is a, a gentler curve to ride. That's true. And and another interesting thing about this, and I don't think I put it in the piece, is that when when bowling crowds come out, they cheer for all the bowlers, mm-hmm. and they surely have favorites in the way you have a favorite NASCAR driver. But they're kind of cheering for the sport. And they're kind of cheering for everyone, which get which takes away a little bit of that do or die. I'm gonna you know cry in my uh, in my steak tonight uh, affect that football has. So right. it does become a little bit milder, and it becomes a little bit more fun. It's just kind of a day at the alley. Well, one of the things that militates against the irony argument is. That, and let's get C1 ready here, that although the fans may be somewhat inspired by this movie, the bowlers, the actual professional bowlers you talked to, in many cases, had not seen this movie. Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. It's just, hey, man, it's Smokey. So his toe slipped over a little, you know? It's just a game, man. This is a league game. This determines who enters the next round robin. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't over. Give me the marker, dude. I'm marking an eight. Smoky, my friend. 
You're entering a world of pain. Walter, man. You mark that frame and eight, you're entering a world of pain. I'm not. A world of pain. Look, dude, I, this is your partner. Is the whole world gone crazy? Am I the only one around here who gives a the rules? Mark it zero. They're calling the cops, man. Put the piece away. Mark it zero. Walter, put the piece away. Walter? You think I'm around here? Mark it zero. All right, it's zero. You happy, you crazy? Fully game smoke. Okay, that's like time 87 for me, and I'm still laughing. Um, so, but they don't, that's not, that's not their movie, right? The people who are actually doing this for real as pros, the Big Lebowski is not their Rosetta Stone. No, this is my Seymour Hirsch revelation in this piece, yeah. which is that pro bowlers prefer Kingpin, which is the far less, shall we say, subtle Farrelly Brothers movie of roughly the same period to the Coen Brothers movie, Lebowski. And the reason they told me over and over again is Kingpin is about bowling, but Lebowski just has bowling in it. Right. You know, bowling is almost what you say when you talk about ironic detachment. It's, it's you know, something for us to kind of laugh at. And I, and I, and that really resonated with me because I thought, you know, these guys don't need the Coen brothers to say what they do is cool. These guys, these guys have wanted to be bowlers anyway. They didn't, they didn't need some hipster stoner movie to, to dignify it for them. This bowling. And, that, and that's enough for them. Brian, that's a great point. Uh, I don't want to uh, tell you how to use words, but I would say that far less subtle Farrelly Brothers movie is kind of a redundancy. Um, <laughs> yeah, very point taken, just in case anybody had not, you know, right. did not know what the Farrelly Brothers were. Yes. Does Kingpin have, um, is Randy Quaid in that movie? I'm trying to even picture this movie. Yes. Yeah. Randy Quaid is the Amish bowler uh, okay. who comes out of nowhere in the manner of a sports movie. Well, he did sacrifice her li- his life to save us from aliens. So I guess I, I owe him <laughs> watching that movie. Hey, before we lose track of this, so, you know, people always talk about how football is the perfect game for television and it's made itself more perfect for television. Um, but everything has to make itself perfect for television. So bowling is has risen to the challenge, right? They're starting to use some technology. Yeah, the one way bowling was already perfect for television is the action goes south to north mm-hmm. instead of east to west. So from a TV programmer, you have all this space at the side of the screen and what Fox has done is put up these big, um, you know, gizmos on the right-hand side that are very similar to the way a tracker that can trace the path of the bowling ball in the same way that you can trace a tee shot at the U.S. Open. Yeah, you I love those see things. see how a bowler sort of curves in, and, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, they're not just rolling it down the lane and trying to hit the, the, the one pin like I am on a Saturday afternoon. They're, they're really working these curves, and they're working the oil in the lanes, which is also very complicated. And, and it does make you appreciate their art, if that's the right word for it, a lot more. Right. And do they have like a, some kind of red dot on the ball or something? They're, uh, they're doing something else, too, right? Yeah, there's, there's a tracer. There's, they, they make the oil blue now. They dye it blue so you can see how the lane is oiled. And it's oiled in a way like you know, Augusta National makes it green so that it makes it complicated for the bowler. It challenges them. And, and they like that. They want to be challenged. Right. So eventually... I don't know how far they've come towards this, but eventually they're going to be talking about, you know, 
launch angles and exit velocity and and, yes. and, and all kinds of stuff. And it'll be another sport that A Rod doesn't understand. Um, we're um, so did the, did all of this when you were all done having your fun with this and and writing so eloquently about this. I, did it leave any kind of lasting mark on you? Are you likely to be flipping FS1 on at some point and, and watching one of these bowling things now that nobody's paying you to? Yeah, I mean, as we sit here, I'm staring at a bowling pin that I bought at the lane to remind me. Uh, as, a, as a, you know, I don't, I don't buy a lot of souvenirs on my journalistic travels, but I, I was moved to buy one, so I think that tells you something. And it is to me. It's fun, and it's, I have young kids. And the thing is, they've been bowling. They haven't played baseball yet, even at a little league level. But they they they've bowled, so we can turn it on and have this kind of interesting father son daughter experience where we watch it together, and they go, "Oh, Dad, I know what that's like," and they can appreciate the characters, and they can appreciate the wacky announcer, and they can they can just sort of drink it in. It's yes, we will watch it, and it's fun. We, we've got about a minute left. You should say something about bullying traditionalists. Not everybody likes all the bells and whistles and whatever oh. irony or Lebowskiism has flowed into all of this. Yeah, the PBA commissioner told me he gets a lot of letters from traditionalists, and they have not been composed on computers. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of hunting and pecking going on. And, yeah, they don't like Rob Stone, the announcer. They don't like people yelling uh, during, you know, they, they want to go back to that Chris Schenkel ideal you talked about where it's just it's very calm and very soothing and we're being utterly serious about the sport right i mean in a way though that 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 existence was possible in a three network era where people didn't have so many choices uh you know you could do something like that and you could take it utterly seriously and you didn't have to wwe it up at all but now everything has to be wwe it up uh, witness the uh, Democratic debates coming up in the next two days. So um, yes. so they are ready to rumble. We're ready to leave, although I do encourage people to uh, read Brian Curtis's piece uh, about bullying in the ringer. It is just terrific, and it's really fun and funny. Brian, thanks for being with us again. Thanks, as always, Colin. All right. We're going to go, uh, and but we do thank Betsy Kaplan for doing this show and, uh, and Kion Wolf for making it sound so good. And is Carolyn or just, Carolyn's in there. Carolyn McCusker, our intern, has been there on the phones. And we will be back tomorrow. We're going to rerun our um, Saul Lewitt show. This is just a great piece about an artist. You would think this would be a hard thing to do a radio show about. And you'd be right, but it's a really good radio show. And then we have some other excitement for you coming up as the week goes along.